How does one gauge grandeur or define divinity? Can you evaluate the essence of excellence? Is majesty merely a measure of might, power, prestige or popularity? Can splendor simply be summed up by social status? Or might there be something more creative than the canned conclusion our culture has come to? Who could demonstrate a life defining true greatness? Who might elevate above the awe of angels, look beyond the limits of the law, and transcend the truth of Torah? Who might move beyond the miracles of Moses and precede the prized promised land? Who might surpass the position of the priests modeling the immorality of Melchizedek? Whose sacrifice could solidify sustaining sanctification? Whose covenant could fully capture the criteria of perfection? Who can transmit transformation through trust, fabricate faithfulness, and bring life that multiplies life from dust? This is the book of Hebrews. When, uh, and, and I had heard that it's important to even sing to the baby. Um, now, if you've ever sat next to me during worship, you wouldn't think that that was the best idea ever. And, uh, and I would agree. And so I decided to try a negative plus a negative equals a positive. So I sang Abby, the song, It's a Small World over and over and over again, which Ali, I'm sure, was a big fan of. And sure enough, during the first couple weeks, uh, when I would hold Abby if she was crying, uh, I would notice that when I started singing that song to her, the familiarity of my voice with that exact song would slowly calm her down. Now, I didn't do a peer-reviewed research study, so I don't know how what the percentage of that moment was all encompassing, but at least there was perhaps possibly maybe just a little bit of help that that particular song and my particular voice helped to calm my daughter down, which I thought was really sweet and cool, right? Um, and it reminded me of this, that there is something familiar or powerful about a familiar voice. When it's been a long time since you talked to a parent or a good friend that you don't see very often and you get on the phone with them and you hear their voice, uh, you kind of just like feel at peace a little bit, right? Like you're like there's something that uh, an email or a text message or, uh, or a direct message on social media just can't convey that hearing somebody's voice can do. Uh, there's a very visceral, real biological response to the hearing and the voice of a loved one. And we actually see the beginnings of God's voice when we look into the scriptures at the beginning of Genesis and we hear God's voice, the voice of the creator who speaks all of creation into existence, and it was. And then he would match each genre of creation uh, with this thought or phrase, and it would be spoken, it is good. All the way through to the image-bearing humanity being created, male and female, and which he, he said to himself, it is very good. But the story continues, as you might well be aware of, in the man and the woman, they hear a different voice soon after. This different voice is the voice of a serpent, and he is questioning the voice of 
the creator. And that questioning and that voice and that tone somehow becomes more attractive to the voice of their creator, their father, whose voice they were made to hear all along. And so they rebel and they trust the voice of the serpent and they enter into sin and rebellion. And from here on out, humanity's story becomes one of no longer being able to clearly make out God's voice. There's no sinless understanding that what he says goes. And when we do hear him clearly, there is always the temptation inside that pulls quicker than anything else to walk away from his words, to go against what he would say and to be disobedient to his call. And I just think about that in terms of me as a dad. And just like holding my baby in that moment uh, when, when I would sing that particular song over and it would calm her down. It would bring ease to her, or at least again, I'm telling myself that three years in. And, and it would calm her down. And how sad it is, this idea that the first thing that humanity does when it is very good is to immediately look for ways to go listen to a different voice, listening to a different lullaby, listening to something else that draws out not towards what is good, right, and pleasing to God, but what is deceptive and dark and in bondage and chains. Now imagine we all know what it is like um, to some extent about what it means to hear God's voice or to feel like you can't hear his voice. Perhaps you've been in a season of like just deep darkness. You could call it the, um, the dark night of the soul. And you're praying out to God, crying out to him. And you're like, why can't I hear your voice? Or you've been looking for direction as you're trying to process some major decisions. And it seems like there is zero clarity about what you're supposed to do next. And you're like, God, I just need to hear from you. I mean, even those who don't even believe in God, uh, when, when everything is going wrong, it is so, uh, so easy to begin to pray out to a God that you don't even know is even there because there's something innate in us. It's like just crying out in the hopes of intervention or wisdom. Or could you even say for the song and the voice of your dad? And so how do we reconcile these realities? What are we supposed to make of this tension that as creatures, we were created to hear and listen to God's voice, to listen and obey his voice. And yet that same voice is often difficult to hear, difficult to understand. And when we do hear it, it's even more difficult to listen and obey. So tonight, we're going to begin our journey into the letter to the Hebrews, and we're going to be exploring the mysteries of its authorship and, its, and, and the enlightenment that this letter gives into God's desire to speak to his people. And in it, what we're going to discover is how God desires to speak to us. And so the year, the year is sometime between 65 to 68 AD, um, just a uh, a few uh, decades earlier, the young sect of Judaism, originally known as the followers of the way, now have been starting to spread that they're being labeled as these Christians. Uh, they are made up of uh, Jews, ethnic Jews, who have started to follow Jesus as their anointed one, as the Messiah, and then is also now filled with non-Jews known as Gentiles. And that, that is creating friction within the Jewish community. 
And you can imagine that in a particular city where there's 60,000 of them, which is a large substantial amount of an of a, a ethnic minority in a particular city at this time, are resting in the capital of the world, in Rome. And these tensions are starting to bubble over and it's starting to cause, uh, it becomes an excuse for the beginnings of uh, initial persecution by an emperor named Claudius in 49 AD. It's about 18 years in the past. And then 15 years in the future, another emperor named Nero sits on the throne and a mysterious fire breaks out and it destroys a, a large chunk of the city of Rome and he blames it on the Christians. And that begins the great persecution. And so you have this young, vibrant Jesus community made of Jews and Gentiles that were known for their dedication to the clear teachings of Jesus, that were known to come into an area and be a blessing, that they were uh, going and adopting children from the streets, that they are taking care of the widows, that they are going out and demonstrating love and good deeds everywhere they go that they are known in community, that they are known by their love for one another. They're imperfect, and yet God is doing something super cool in their midst. And now the persecution is getting intense. Extreme pressures on every aspect of your life. Businesses are being shut down. Families are being excommunicated. That You are now considered societal outcasts. If you're a Jew, Again, there's that tension even at home. You don't get to go home for the holidays anymore. And, and the persecution's not just pressure anymore. It's now turning into bloodshed as men, women, and children who have claimed to follow Jesus are now being slaughtered in the Colosseum by the Roman authorities. What would you do in that if you were one of Jesus' Jewish followers. Think about that. The, 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 the occupying culture, the, the Roman culture, the majority culture is clearly against you. It's not like, well, I just kind of feel a certain way. No, like, like it's legit. It is intense and it's very visceral. And then your, your ethnic people group, your family and your friends that you grew up with, they don't want to talk to you anymore. You are now ostracized in every which way. So it'd be like everything is coming down on you from all corners. What would you be tempted to do? Call, call it quits? Say, you know what? I'm just going to go back to being with the Jewish people. I mean, it's a little bit easier. I, their, their faith isn't exactly loved or respected by the Romans, but hey, at least you have family and at least they tolerate you. Wouldn't you be tempted See, this temptation to return to safer waters has become a big issue. Uh, that was such a big issue that this becomes the core of why this particular letter was written to the Hebrew followers of Jesus who were worn out, exhausted, exhausted. They're not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. They don't know how this gets better. They don't know at this point if they're even on the right side. Because if Jesus really is the conquering king, then why is everything looking so bleak around them? And so the letter to the Hebrews, it's unique when it comes to its place in the canon of the scriptures. 
It's specifically unique from any of the other letters that were sent to any of the other churches in the New Testament. Uh, And we're going to explore some of those differences as we go across the months ahead. But one of the most significant points, one of the most significant differences starts with the very beginning of the letter. And so we're in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 tonight. Um, we do have these, uh, these are uh, scripture journals. This is the uh, illuminated one. And there is also uh, a black one that's a little bit less fanciful. Uh, both are great. And we have all, uh, both varieties in the back um, that we have tonight at the home sign. Those are for you to just take with you. Um, those are just a gift for being here tonight. And we'll continue to have those. We might run out tonight. And if we do, that's okay. Just come back next week and we'll have more copies. Cool? Cool. All right. So we're in the letter of Hebrews chapter one. And here's how it starts. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So let's pause there. So the first thing that separates this letter from any of the other letters, and specifically, or zooming out a little bit more, from most other letters of antiquity around the same time, is that you would always start your letter with stating the author, who it's to and who it's by. But this letter doesn't do that. In fact, nowhere in this letter do you find out definitively who the author is. Now, throughout the centuries, there have been a ton of guesses about who could have authored this letter. But because it's so unique in style and approach, the best that we have are just that, guesses. However, this letter has been from the time of the early church all the way through today has been always seen as authoritative scripture, breathed out, by the power of the Spirit of God, working through a human author or authors. Now, it matters that there isn't a clear author because each of the other letters typically use the identity of the author to give credibility to what's being said. Like you hear who it's by and then you go, oh, okay, I should, I should listen up. It's Peter or Paul or Jude or James, or any of the other authors of these letters, you're like, okay, I better be listening here because this is kind of a big deal. But this one doesn't do that. Now it's believed that even though the author doesn't state his name, it was an intentional decision uh, to prove the point of this entire letter. That in the midst of difficulty and heartache and confusion and doubt and frustration and you name it, Jesus is greater that your consolation shouldn't be rooted in Peter. It shouldn't be rooted in Paul. It shouldn't be rooted in your favorite teacher. It should solely be rooted in the person of Jesus. Jesus is greater. And the author is being guided by the Holy Spirit not to distract anyone from this reality. It's as if the author wants us to ensure that with so many other obstacles that might be in our hearts and our minds that we cannot look to the author to be an obstacle for us. So instead, the author begins, instead of saying, from so-and-so, greetings. Y'all are awesome. I have a great thing to say to you guys. You should listen up. Let's get started and we're gonna go. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just starts, this is just epic. Long ago, 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he starts it off in such a creative way. Now, I don't know how many of you are fans of classic movies or just like when you go home to visit your parents, one happens to be on or something. But if you watch any movie pre-1977, it always started with like five to 10 minutes of credits, right? The movie began with credits saying all the people who worked on the movie. And this was a SAG after a requirement. So anytime you produced a movie, you always had to give credit where credit was due to start the movie, probably because they know people start leaving the theater towards the end. And so you would have to do that. Now in 1977, something changes the game. Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars comes out in 1977 and George Lucas does something that was like actually rebellious. And he uh, decides that to start the movie with, the, with credits would actually distract from the story. It wouldn't immerse you in the story. So what he did instead was the first words you would read were the scrolling yellow script, bringing you through, making you go, oh my gosh. And you're starting to get all this context and information about a, slant, a story and an entire universe that you've never even heard of before. And so it's starting to build that drama. So when the, the first Star Destroyer goes past and you're like, oh my gosh, things are happening here. It's immersive. If, if some of you know this, but uh, George Lucas ended up getting in trouble and got disbarred from SAG-AFTRA for a while because of that decision. Um, and now that's the industry standard though. So I guess he was kind of right. I don't know, but it makes for an immersive story. Let's not get distracted on Star Wars right now, okay? And that's what this author is doing. We're not gonna get distracted with the credits. We're gonna go right in. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, this author is even playing off the style of Greek rhetoric. So uh, scholars will look at this from antiquity and go, man, this was incredible for the time. This was like 10 out of 10 TED Talk style. Like this stuff is a big deal. And the way he's like putting words and phrases together or just wonderful when you're reading this in ancient Greek. And so that long ago business, he's immediately transporting you in that is a part of Greek rhetoric. And then he even uses a different pattern of Greek rhetoric, which is, a, which is alliteration. Now we don't get this in English, but this letter first being written in Greek, it uses the Greek letter, which we translate into P five times in this first sentence. I don't have a good alliteration for you, so I'm not even gonna try right now. Um, but he is repeating over and over and over again. And when you hear somebody kind of do alliteration and it's not cheesy, it's like, ooh, that was good. And that's what he's doing here. And what he has to say is meant to draw weary, discouraged, doubtful, terrified followers of Jesus near. And what does he have to say long ago? And many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. It's like he's saying, you might be 
feeling distant from God right now. You might be worried and unnerved, wondering if this path of Jesus is the right path for you. You might be wondering, what is God up to in your story right now? But let me remind you, Hebrews, let me remind you, descendants of Abraham, of the story of your own ancestors. And so he says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. See, the story of the nation of Israel is a consistent one of God's continual desire to communicate with his people, irregardless of how they're doing at the time. He desires to speak to his covenant people. Now, oftentimes they didn't want to listen. And so God would appoint particular individuals for a particular time, and they were known as the prophets. And their job was to be God's mouthpieces, to convey God's message to God's people. See, the barrier of human sinfulness is God's separation, but God still wanted to communicate with his people. And so he would use a bunch of these prophets that any of these Jewish uh, readers or listeners to this message, they would have known automatically. Moses and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Samuel, many of these guys are going to be alluded to or named directly within this letter. All to say, God has always wanted to speak to you. And he used to do it through the prophets. So like on the plus side, you get to hear from God. I mean, yay, right? But on the bummer side, it was always only through a middleman. See, the communica- communication line was never unfiltered. There wasn't direct access for all the people to hear the voice of God, to know that he is near. And then there's a really good but here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, it wasn't good enough for God to speak to his people through prophets. And as we're going to get to in the next section of this letter through angelic messengers, God was not content with uh, intermediaries, with middlemen who would be the conduits that he would use to speak to his people. God wants his people to hear his voice. He's a good dad and he wants his kids to hear him singing over them. The same voice that spoke creation into being, the same voice that looked at the first man and the first woman and said to himself, it is very good, is the same voice. Or there's a Greek word for it. It's the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S, that John would write about in his gospel account. So in this, in this passage, in John chapter one, which Lauren uh, me- helped us meditate on earlier, the word for word is logos, God's voice. So in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. He was in the beginning and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, no, seriously, it was all made through him. If you're looking at something made through the Logos. 
And then in verse 14, though, this concept of logos, now that's a, a Greek rhetorical phrase uh, that has a whole lot of meaning. If you took argumentation or communication in college, you're probably familiar with it. I'm definitely not doing a deep dive on it right now because I don't remember a lot of it. But the logos was an ethereal concept. It was kind of an out there concept about rhetoric and terms in general. And so to say the logos of God in all of these huge implicative ways, saying that all things were made through the power of God's logos. But then verse 14 happens and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us as we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so how does the father now speak to his people? How does the father desire so badly that we would hear his lullaby, that we would hear his commands, that we would hear his desires for us? It would not be through another prophet. It wouldn't be through some gifted speaker. It wouldn't be through anybody but himself. Through his voice, the logos of God taking on flesh taking on the residency of a human body. And that Logos would now communicate through a throat that also inhales oxygen and exhales carbon dioxide. Vocal cords. A tongue to help form sounds. Like, this weird ethereal concept of the logos of God is now a person. And that makes all the difference because it takes it out of the theoretical and makes it in the insanely practical. It takes it out of this place. Well, well, I mean, it's good for you, God, because you're in the heavens. And it takes you to the point of going, I now have the voice of God who experienced everything I will ever experience and didn't succumb to sin, but instead could press into love. Now, these followers of Jesus, they were embattled, right? Everything was coming against them on all sides. The world seemed to be closing in on them. And what they needed to know was, God, are you there? Where are you? Am I on the right path? Is it time to return back to the religious traditions of my father's? with the belief that God's voice could only be heard through the prophets. I mean, that's not ideal, but hey, it's better than nothing, I guess, right? And the reality is this is so easily where any of us can be. And perhaps some of you are there right now. You're struggling with doubt and fear and grief and sorrow uh, and skepticism and frustration. And you're ready to throw things at a wall. Like you just want to know God in the middle of this difficulty. Where are you? And one of the clearest things when you're in a room that is pitch dark You can still hear a voice. It's funny when we're, um, both of our kids now sleep with uh, night lights in their rooms. Abby was so good for the first two years. She slept in pitch black darkness um, with the white noise on. It was wonderful that things have changed. And, uh, um, and so 
they have to have a nightlight on when they're sleeping in the room by themselves. But when they're sleeping in a hotel room and, uh, and it's dark and they call out to us and we can just simply respond, something's different apparently. They don't need the nightlight on because they know that we're there. When things get dark, we need to know that our father's there. We need to know that he hasn't forsaken us or abandoned us. And if you're wondering, how can I know that for sure? You simply look to the cross. You look at the God who did not abandon you in every moment that he should have. If you're wondering if God was going to abandon you, he had every right to for so many opportunities. And he didn't then. And so it's so much easier from not to now. See, like, like Abby is a newborn, we need to hear the calming voice and song of our dad. The voice that speaks matter into existence is now here to remind you of who he is and who you are. And so in this letter to the Hebrews, we're gonna discover that Jesus is not just some footnote to the story of your life. Jesus is not a part of your life. You're a part of his story. And he's the climax of this story. In Hebrews, we're going to discover that Jesus is the true and better promise to all the promises made in the Old Testament of the scriptures. In Hebrews, we're going to discover that the reason why these early followers of Jesus and us today can now hold on to Jesus in the midst of difficulty is because he is already holding on to you. And in Hebrews, we're going to discover that the voice of God in the flesh, Jesus We're going to discover him in incredible ways in this letter. If we just have ears to hear, ears open to hearing the voice of God beckoning us towards himself, desiring so desperately that we would experience him, that we would abide in him, that we'd experience peace in him, that we'd be sent out by him into the everyday realities of our life with a heart of contentment not rooted in our circumstances, but rooted in who we are and whose we are. And so this is the letter to the Hebrews that we're stepping into, where we discover that when we're curious, God, where are you? What is your guidance? We have the beautiful benefit of the word of God, the scriptures to draw us near because the scriptures are not just things about God. They are the words of God made clear to us even when they're quite confusing to us. And it's in those that we hear the voice of Jesus, the word of God taking on the form of flesh so that we would know that even in the darkness, we are not alone. So that we would know that even in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, that there is no extent that he would not go to, to redeem and restore us back to himself. So this is the gospel that we will be unpacking and discovering as we enter in to the letter of Hebrews. I wanna invite the band to come on up. And so for tonight, I wanted us to dwell on the words of God through one of the prophets. And so what we're going to do tonight is 
we're going to take a moment to meditate on the scriptures. There's a particular passage that I think is very fitting, and I just have to keep coming back to it because I struggle with this so much myself. It comes from a prophet named Zephaniah. Zephaniah, probably never even heard of the dude. He's one of the minor prophets. His prophecies are quite small in comparison with the lengths of some of the other books in the Bible. And yet Zephaniah became the mouthpiece of God to Israel when they were being caved in at all sides, when it seemed like nothing was going right and God had abandoned them. And so what I want to invite us into right now is to simply close our eyes and just... um, I'm going to be reading the same passage over you a few times. And as I do that, what I want you to do is just start taking deep breaths in and out. Perhaps uncross your legs if your legs are crossed and put your arms out on your lap open. All those things, it's not mystical. It's simply a, a way to just posture our body physically, to draw near, to be open quiet our hearts and our minds from all the busyness and chaos that ensues and draw near to the one who has already drawn near to us. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord your God is in
emotions in your mind filled with so many thoughts that you're just racing and confused and frustrated and loud. Can you believe it that his desire is to quiet you by his love? He doesn't quiet you by telling you to shut in, by scoffing, by yelling. definition of good and bad over our 